بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وأفضل الصلاة وأتم التسليم على سيدنا محمد الصادق الأمين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد الحمد لله We have now reached verse 51 and inshallah we want to go from verse 51 to 59 today and we're going to be looking at two sets of themes before we get to the story of Musa and Khidr which after the story of the young men in the cave it's actually the third story but it's one of the more uh, notable stories and memorable stories because it's such a vivid uh, picture of interaction between these two figures and there's a lot of lessons that it teaches us and a lot of warnings so that's the next class we'll be getting to that story of Sayyidina Musa and Khidr and we'll talk about a lot of issues related to that uh, in the meantime we want to cover verses 51 to 59 and these sets of verses give us two themes so from 51 to 53 we have a basic description of the state of the mushrikun, the idol worshippers, and more warnings towards them. And then in verses 54 to 59, we read verses where Allah Ta'ala describes the clarity of the Qur'an and its power in convincing people who are open to guidance. And it also explains the reasons for the stubbornness of different kinds of disbelievers. And it explains the purpose behind sending messengers and engaging with those disbelievers. So you see in these themes, there are also general themes found in so many other places in the Quran. So we begin with verse 51. In the beginning, Allah Ta'ala says مَا أَشْهَدْتُهُمْ خَلْقَ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَلَا خَلْقَ أَنفُسِهِمْ وَمَا كُنْتُ مُتَّخِذَ الْمُضِلِّينَ عَضُدًا He says, I did not call them to witness the creation of the heavens and the earth, nor their own creation. And I do not take the misleaders for assistance. Now this translation is coming from the clear Qur'an of Dr. Mustafa al-Khattab and it's a translation that we use here. I usually give it out to new converts and generally I advise people to read it if they want to go to an easy translation that's accessible. However, translators always have their own preferences. So I would retranslate that a little bit. But let's look at this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins this verse with a negation. A negation. مَا أَشْهَدْتُهُمْ خَلْقَ السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ I did not call them to witness the creation of the heavens and the earth, nor their own creation. So the question here is, who is them in this verse? Whenever you come across pronouns in the Qur'an, you need to figure out who is the referent in this pronoun. Who is it referring to? So idmar, or the use of pronouns, is a very important aspect of 
the Quranic sciences. So who is them? Shaitan. Yeah. If you go to the previous ayat, you could link them to the shayateen. Right? So the scholars of tafsir mentioned this. They say that them can refer to the shayateen. It can refer to the jinn, you know, shayateen, basically. And also it can refer to the idols themselves, the asnam, the idols themselves. And that is one position among the scholars of tafsir. Another position is that them is referring to the people who took partners with Allah Ta'ala in worship. That means that them refers to the mushrikun. Now, what that means is Allah is saying to them as idol worshippers, you did not witness your so-called shuraka, your so-called partners create the heavens and the earth, nor did you witness some create others. Like it's a possibility. Like Allah could be telling the mushrikun, these idols that you worship, these statues, you didn't witness them create anything. How can you worship them? You didn't witness them create each other, create anything. So this is futile. So that's one way of looking at it. Another interpretation is that them refers not to the shayateen and not to the idols and not to uh, the people who took part, like, partners with Allah Ta'ala in the general sense, but it refers to Quraysh. Right? So this would mean is going back to that early reference of Quraysh who were requesting or demanding the Prophet ﷺ to kick out the poor among the believers before they would sit in the gathering. When we keep going back to that story because that is a central story behind the cause of revelation of many of these verses. We go back to that story. So accordingly, it's as if Allah Ta'ala is saying that these stubborn people of Quraysh, these stubborn deniers, they did not witness, Allah did not call them to witness the creation of the heavens and the earth. They were not called to witness. They were not consulted or made a part of any committee in the creation of the heavens and the earth. They are created from Adam, from nothing, from just like everyone else. So the point here is that the Quraysh who are telling the Prophet ﷺ to kick out the poor among the believers, it's as if Allah is saying that they are not partners to be consulted in what Allah creates and decides. They don't get to decide who is going to receive eternal happiness, sa'ada, or who's going to be damned in hell, shaqawa. So if they themselves are ignorant of their own end, what's going to happen to them, how can they claim to have a position over the rest of people, right? So the lesson, if you boil it down to a single point, the lesson is that we as human beings are the khalq of Allah. We're the creation of Allah, like everything else created by Allah Ta'ala. And no one in creation, no created being, has any veto power over Allah's decisions. No one has any veto power over the rulings of Allah Ta'ala. If Allah wills that some people will be honored, 
and some people will be humiliated, no one can veto that and block the decision of Allah Ta'ala. So if you read it with the pronoun referring to Quraysh, it's, it means that Allah is saying to them, I did not call Quraysh, these stubborn disbelievers of Quraysh, to witness the creation of the heavens and the earth, nor their own creation. And I do not take the misleaders or the misguiders for assistance. So this means Allah Ta'ala is stating His absolute independence. He does not take the people of Dalala who misguide others as assistants. He doesn't need good people. He doesn't need bad people. So if He doesn't need good people, He doesn't need anything. How much more so would He need evil people who mislead others? So this is the general message in this verse. <coughs> so basically Allah is saying He doesn't take them as helpers. So why would He take them as allies? Uh, so why, why should you take these idols as allies, as partners in worship with Him? So this is an example of how all three meanings are correct. It just depends on how you read that pronoun. The pronoun, if interpreted as a reference to the shayateen, it has a very particular meaning. If it's read, is, if they is read as the idols that are worshipped, it has a particular meaning. If they is read as Quraysh, it has a particular meaning. And all three of these meanings are correct in themselves. Right? So you can say all three are right because they're different perspectives, all of which are sound. So this goes back to the principle of tafsir we mentioned. And I think it was the tafsir of Surah Fatiha class. We talked about this. In the Siratul Mustaqim, what is it? Right? Some say it's the Quran, some say Islam, some say Sunnah, some say the Deen, some say the Prophet. Is there any contradiction? No, there's no contradiction. Likewise, here, even though idols are distinct from human beings, the meaning is correct, right? Allah does not take the idols as helpers. Allah says that they did not witness the creation of the heavens and the earth. And the same applies to the shayateen. And the same applies to Quraysh. So all of these meanings are correct. So this is one of the uh, beauties of Quranic eloquence that you can read multiple meanings in a single verse. But when you translate it, the only way this will come out is if you put it in a footnote, which becomes tafsir. So that's what we're doing as well. So right after this, the surah then paints another scene from the Day of Judgment, highlighting the consequence that awaits those who had associated partners with Allah in worship. So we remember in the previous class, we were looking at those verses where Allah described the Day of Judgment. So now again, He's describing that day. And He says, وَيَوْمَ يَقُولُ نَادُوا شُرَكَائِيَ الَّذِينَ زَعَمْتُمْ on the day when he, Allah, will say, Call on my partners whom you have claimed. They will call on them, but they will not answer them. And we will place between them a barrier. In Arabic, this 
kind of phrase is called tawbikh. And tawbikh means a, basically a, a condemnation or a scolding. It's not a permission for them to call on other than Allah, but it is a condemnation. And it shows that on the last day, on the day of judgment, these people, among others, are going to be challenged to call on their partners for help. So those who worship this or that idol, or this or that person, or this or that thing, on the day of judgment, if they died in that state of shirk, on the day of judgment, they will receive the challenge to call upon the things or people they used to worship in this world. But on that day, it will be very clear to them that no help is forthcoming and that they're absolutely lost. They will see and experience that these partners will not ha help them, cannot help them. And indeed, for the humans among them, those partners they worshiped alongside of Allah will even condemn them. So you, you'll see this, this image of them being challenged to call upon those people or things they worship besides Allah. Those things cannot help them, will not help them, and the human beings they worshiped will reject whatever worship they did towards them and will blame them. And basically, by blaming them, it highlights that no one forced them to do this. No one forced them. They made a choice. They made a choice and they are bearing the fruits, the bitter fruits of that choice. So basically, instead of them being resurrected, judged and thrown straight into hell, these rebukes and these challenges for them to call on those they worship besides Allah becomes a form of added punishment. And we talked about that in the previous class how some of these things add to the punishment, the, the humiliation or the sense of loss, the fact that not only are they condemned to hell, but they're also challenged to call upon these people or things, and they realize it's completely futile, and the people they worship will actually condemn them. So that adds to the grief and adds to the punishment of hell. So Allah Ta'ala then says after this, they'll call on them, they won't answer them. And we will place between them a barrier, a barrier. Then the word for barrier here is mobiq, mobiq, mobiqa. And a mobiq is a barrier or it is a gulf, you know, like a, a vast gulf between two things. Or it is like a wadi or a vast valley. Mobiq can apply to these things. Uh, a mobiq can also apply to destruction or ruin, halak. It can also refer to hell itself. So <coughs> these are all possible meanings. Some of the scholars of tafsir say that when Allah says that there is a mobiq between them, it means a gulf, meaning a vast, uh, you could say a gap or a gulf between them of feelings, a gulf of feelings. What that means is they're going to be, there's going to be animosity and hatred and resentment because of their end state. This is one interpretation. So 
you can imagine a person who spent their life worshiping Hanuman, the statue, right? This idol. On the day of judgment, if we take this Quranic description, people who do that and die in that state will be resurrected. And on the day of judgment, they will be challenged to call upon Hanuman to see if the statue can do anything. And these statues become the fuel of hell itself. They can't help them. And this creates such uh, remorse that there becomes a mobiq between them and the idols, meaning they have great animosity and hatred now towards the things that they used to worship and adore. But it's, it's an inanimate object. It didn't do anything to them. May, they made the choice to worship this inanimate object, right? So this is one interpretation, one way of looking at it. Uh, Imam Razi talks a bit about this. Uh, and this, this highlights something I feel is really important uh, as, a, as a message of da'wah. Imam al-Razi talks about this mawbiq, and he says the mawbiq or the barrier or gulf is the mahlik. It's like a place or an area of ruin and destruction. And he says, describing this, that the idol worshippers who took uh, deities or beings as objects of worship besides Allah, such as people who worshipped um, angelic beings, the angels, or those who worshipped Prophet Isa alayhi salam among Christians. Those who took these uh, creatures as gods besides Allah will be calling upon them on the last day, but they will not answer them. And as they call upon them and do not receive any answer and any help, and they realize what's going on, they're comes between them and what they used to worship, this gulf. And the gulf here refers to hell itself. So picture this in your mind. On the Day of Judgment, they're calling upon whatever, they're not answering, and then hell is presented to them. So between them and those objects is hell. And there's no one to deliver them from hell. And at that point, Imam Razi says, well, Sayyiduna Isa alayhi salam, enters Jannah, right? So he's not going to be there. The angels go wherever Allah places them in the heavenly realm. And at that state, at that state or that place, they are at the mawbiq, this valley of hell, the precipice, and they don't get to receive anything. They just go straight to hell. So the message I think you can derive from this is that you know, we want people to become Muslim. We want to call them to Islam. We want them to leave any uh, form of shirk, of worshipping other than Allah. We want Christians to become Muslim, right? Ideally, you know, we ask Allah to open their hearts. In a general sense, we want them to become Muslim. And I think that in any real sincere conversation with a Christian, we have to convey this point that, listen, if you love Prophet Jesus as you should, the only way to have access to him, real access in Jannah, is by you becoming a Muslim. Because in your love for Jesus, by worshiping him and calling him the Son of God, or uh, one of three in the Trinity, 
despite your love for Jesus, that shirk, that association of partners with Allah, if you die with that, it actually means you'll not have any access to Prophet Jesus. Right? As Muslims, we want access to the Prophet and the other Prophets, sure. So the, if the Christian really wants to have that proximity uh, to Prophet Jesus, well, they have to stop worshipping him. Because if they don't, there'll be a mawbiq on the Day of Judgment. They're not going to have access to him because he'll be in Jannah and they'll be in Jahannam al Ayyadu Billah. So that's a, an important message. Yes? Have you said that in an interfaith setting? And I wonder how Christians <coughs> react to that. They seem they now believe that uh, in afterlife they will have direct access to Isa. They believe that, of course. Yeah, they believe that, of course. Uh, I don't know if I've ever heard any frank talk about these matters in any interfaith gathering. And that's the truth, yeah. what you're because interfaith yeah. gatherings are just to, f first, all feel good about each other. Yeah. They're not actually serving a purpose beyond that, just getting to know people or having a relationship. They're, never, they're not really gatherings of da'wah, mm -hmm. and they're people who already agree to be nice to each other. So there's no real da'wah engagement unless it becomes very purposeful in how we address them. I, I found no peace with explaining it personally or in general. They don't, ex uh, with Allah Tawheed, like oneness of Allah, and the other is they don't believe in Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as a last. These two points count a lot, especially Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Yeah. Then they just... <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's, we, we, we engage with people wherever they are. And there's ways to address issues, right? On a general, as a general point, the best thing to do is have good relationships with people and build connections with them. And then over time, you speak to them, you can educate them, you can inform them about different aspects of Islam and answer questions. Uh, but they need to know who you are. They need to know Muslims. That's really important. So... Yeah, that's a different topic, but so we we come now to the next part of this verse, or the next verse. Allah then tells us of the consequences they face for their disbelief and their shirk. He says, "Wara al mujrimun al nara fadnu anhum mawaqiuha walam yajidu anha masrifa." And the mujrimun, the mujrimun here means the sinners or the criminals, mujrim, ijram, when they will see the fire. Here it's translated as, and will realize that they will tumble into it. They'll find no deliverance from it. So the translation says that they'll see the fire and will realize that they will tumble into it. But if you hear the Arabic, you see, It uses the word dhan. And we talked about dhan in the Aqidah class. That dhan is uh, something like a true guess, but it could be conjecture, guesswork. But in the Arabic language, the word dhan is a special kind of noun, that they call the, they call it a contronym. You know synonym? Like synonym is two words that have the similar or same meaning or near meaning. Yeah. 
So you have this other term in English, contronym. And, and I don't know if it's the best word to describe this, but the word dhan in Arabic can mean conjecture or guesswork, but it can also mean certainty. It can also mean certainty. And you see this in the Quran, right? Allah describes the believers as wadhanu. Uh, they thought, or they I mean they knew a certainty that they would meet their Lord. Right? That doesn't mean they had suspicions or a conjecture that wasn't based on knowledge. No, they had certainty. So, dhan can sometimes mean yaqeen, and it can sometimes mean conjecture or guesswork. So, because of that possibility, you can read this ayah in two different ways. It can mean that the sinners, the mujrimun, will see the hellfire, and they will have, at that point, certain knowledge that they're going to tumble into it. As he translates here, they will realize. You know, they have certain knowledge. The other meaning is that one is a true guess or a conjecture. And if you read it with that meaning, it means that they're going to see the hellfire coming at a distance, being driven closer and closer to them at a distance, and they think that it's likely that they're going to fall into it and enter it. So this is the kind of one of thinking, you know, they think that's going to happen. So as it draws near and they hear it, they are then cast into it and that becomes absolute certainty because they're experiencing it. And because there's no one, once they're cast into the hellfire, there's no one to get them out. Allah Ta'ala says, وَلَمْ يَجِدُوا عَنْهَا مَصْرِفًا They will not find any deliverance from it. There's no rescue. There's, there's no coming out. <coughs> so these verses describe that first theme we're talking about today. After this theme comes a new theme where we see a shift into a description of the Qur'an itself and the reasons for people being stubborn and the nature of kufr and the consequences of kufr. So after describing these realities that will happen on the Day of Judgment, Allah Ta'ala then says, وَلَقَدْ صَرَّفْنَا فِي هَذَا الْقُرْآنِ لِلنَّاسِ مِنْ كُلِّ مَثَلٍ وَكَانَ الْإِنسَانُ أَكْثَرَ شَيْءٍ جَدَلًا Which means, we have elaborated in this Qur'an for the people every kind of example. But the human being is a most argumentative being. Uh, I would translate this a little bit differently. Allah Ta'ala begins this verse by saying, وَلَقَدْ which is a kind of emphasis. It's a double emphasis. So certainly, most certainly, we have elaborated in this Qur'an every kind of similitude, every kind of parable for the people. But human beings are very argumentative. They are incredibly argumentative. So this verse again is pointing to the Quraysh who were stubborn and who 
refused to sit with the poor Muslims and only wanted to sit in the company of the Prophet ﷺ with the condition that he kicks out the poor. Yet despite all of the responses and all of the arguments that were furnished against their falsehood and their attitude, do you think that changed them? Do you think that moved them one inch? It didn't. Nothing moved them. Nothing. They continued to argue. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that this Qur'an has provided for them every kind of similitude, every kind of example, every kind of method. But insan, human beings, are very argumentative. They're very stubborn. So <coughs> Allah says here that despite all of the arguments and responses, despite all of the similitudes and parables, they were stubborn in their falsehood and they refused and they just continued to argue. So Allah Ta'ala says He's provided in the Qur'an for these people, for people, every kind of method. And we've talked about method before. We've looked at a few. The method, we said, is meant to make complex concepts easy and accessible to the everyday person. When you take a complex topic and you make it accessible through a parable, it is something any person at any level of intelligence can understand. So because of that, there's no room to argue. No one can argue that it's too complex or too complicated. Uh, no one can say, well, I'm too dense to understand that. It's simplified. Yet they still refuse even though it's crystal clear. Allah is telling us in this verse that He has clearly explained and clarified Every single thing that human beings know, need to know in this world for their dunya and their deen, everything they need to know to live with truth and guidance has been explained in the Qur'an. They say, the marvels of the Qur'an are unending and it doesn't become boring through repetition, right? Everything is in the Qur'an. Now does that mean that in the Qur'an you find a direct answer to, I don't know, name any issue. What's that? How to pray salat. It's there. Does it talk about where to place your hands? No. So where do we get that? The sunnah. But the Quran does instruct us, what the messenger gives you, take it. So the general verses point us in the direction of those particulars, where to get them. So the specific answers may not be provided word for word in the Qur'an, but the general guidance is. So, you know, and this happened in the time of uh, the Sahaba. Uh, it was a woman who went to Abdullah bin Mas'ud radiallahu anhu, and she says, where in the Qur'an does Allah forbid women from I think she said getting tattoos or in spacing the teeth. It was a form of adornment back then. And is there a verse in the Quran that says anything about tattoos? Nothing. Nothing explicit. But Abdullah ibn Mas'ud said, it is in the Quran. He says, have you not heard the words of Allah Ta'ala? Whatever the messenger gives you, take it. And whatever he forbids you from, abstain from it. 
So he forbade it, and you've been ordered by the Qur'an to follow him, to take what he gives you, and to stay away from what he forbids you. Therefore it is in the Qur'an, talwihan, indirectly, implicitly. Right, so that's what it means. When Allah is saying that uh, all of the guidance is in the Qur'an, it means explicit guidance and implicit guidance for things articulated in the sunnah or through broad principles that we apply to particulars that occur in our lives or in the lives of others. And this is why Ibn Abbas <coughs> he says, if I lost the rope of my camel, I would be able to find it in the book of Allah. Does he mean that literally? Of course not. But what he means is, you have in the Qur'an the general guidance needed for everything. So the skill is to engage with the Qur'an and read it in such a way that you can derive specific guidance for things in your life from the general verses. Because the Qur'an is not going to describe your specific challenge but it describes the general principles that do apply to your specific challenge so the the key here is to make that link right so Allah Ta'ala is saying that this, despite the clarity of the Quran despite its guidance despite the light of the Quran and the details human beings still, by and large, choose to oppose and argue against the truth. Even though Allah explained everything, mankind is predisposed to be stubborn and to argue and dispute. And this is why we find people who internally recognize the truth, but they choose to argue over it and dispute it. It's, this, it's a deep-seated stubbornness, uh, what we call inad, right? Juhud and inad, these qualities of stubbornness, where a person may even recognize the truth internally, but they're too stubborn to accept it and verbalize it and submit to it, right? <coughs> Why? Why do they have that attitude? Allah answers that question. In the next verse, Allah Ta'ala addresses uh, something of the reasons for this stubbornness, particularly among Quraysh. The reason for the stubbornness, Allah says. I, I have a question. Sure. Are human uh, beings by nature contentious? Or the Quraysh were just being contentious because they didn't want to change their ways? Or they were just too powerful and they didn't want to lose all that? Oh, that applies to Quraysh for sure. But it also applies to human beings in general because we all have nufus, we all have egos. So, some more some less, meaning some are less argumentative, some are more argumentative, but it, it is in the nature because we have a nefs that has to be trained and disciplined. And even if it's trained and disciplined, you know, we still have our moments where, you know, you know, something rubs us the wrong way and we just, you know, we have that ego. And this verse, although it's addressing Quraysh, the Prophet ﷺ used it uh, towards a believer and it wasn't just any ordinary believer he recited it in connection with Sayyiduna Ali ibn Abi Talib uh, and 
the hadith is, it was talking about uh, praying tahajjud and him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, instructing his daughter, Sayyida Fatima and Sayyidina Ali with regards to praying tahajjud. And Imam Ali wasn't getting up for tahajjud. And he had his reasons, right? He was working very hard. And he had his reasons and he is mentioning them. And to this, the Prophet ﷺ recited the last part of this verse, uh, mankind is most argumentative. Now, he wasn't arguing with the Prophet ﷺ, but he had his reason, and the Prophet ﷺ was holding up this mirror to say, you know, think about it. This is, you know, perhaps it's an excuse. You know, you have a reason. It's what happens. So that was about Sayyidina Ali, and he wasn't doing anything wrong, because he's not committing a sin here. It's just uh, his response. The, the Prophet ﷺ used this part of the verse. So even if these verses are speaking directly about Quraysh, the general meanings apply to human beings. Yeah. So in the next verse, Allah Ta'ala talks about <coughs> reasons for stubbornness, or you could say Allah speaks about... Uh, or, or uh, the demonstrations of that stubbornness. And he says, What prevented people from accepting faith when guidance has come to them and from seeking their Lord's forgiveness? What's preventing them? Unless they are waiting for the precedent of the ancients to befall them or to have the punishment come upon them face to face. So two things are mentioned here. Or, unless they are waiting for one, sunnatul awwalin. Uh, here he says precedent of the ancients. The sunnah it means the, the pattern the pattern of the people in the earlier times. So the pattern or the way of the early ones. What does this mean? Right? We'll get to that in a second. The second one, or to have the punishment come upon them face to face. So let's reconstruct this. It's as if Allah Ta'ala is saying, what is the matter with them? What prevents them from having iman when guidance has come to them? And here, Al-Huda is referring to the Qur'an and the Prophet It's all guidance. What prevents them from accepting iman when guidance has come to them? What prevents them from seeking their Lord's forgiveness for their shirk, for their oppression, for their arrogance? Unless, and here's the reason for the stubbornness, Unless they're waiting for one or two things, unless they're waiting for Sunnatul Awaleen, and here Sunnatul Awaleen means the encompassing and eviscerating punishment that befell particular nations. So the Awaleen, Aad and Thamud, for instance, right? They received. A, an encompassing punishment where they were utterly destroyed. So they are the awalin, the awail, the early ones, the ancient ones. Uh, 
So the pattern of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his creation dealing with those kinds of people was to destroy them before the Prophet right? Those nations were destroyed. So are they waiting for that? Or are they waiting for a constant stream of punishments one after the other while they're alive? Famine, earthquakes, disease, pestilence, problems, like Fir'aun, right? So what are they waiting for? Are they waiting to receive the punishment of people like Ad and Thamud from the ancients, where they're just utterly obliterated all at once? Or are they waiting for a stream of punishments that come one after the other while they're alive? It's, this is what Allah Ta'ala is saying, and this is a rhetorical question. It's as if their attitude is, we will not believe unless we see coming to us exactly what came to those nations you're telling us about. Or unless we receive and see directly exactly what you say happened to Fir'aun. That's stubbornness. It's basically saying, I won't believe until I'm right at the edge of hell. Then it's face to face and, okay, maybe then. It's a stubbornness and arrogance. So <coughs> it's important to understand this because Allah answers this objection or Allah answers that state of mind in the very next verse. Because in the very next verse, Allah explains that the reason why he sent anbiya and rusul, prophets and messengers, is for people to believe, to embrace iman willingly. Not where, when they're at the edge of hell and when they're surrounded by punishment and it's just the only option as if they're basically forced into it. No. To embrace Iman willingly out of conviction. This is why in the next verse, Allah clarifies this. And says, وَمَا نُرْسِلُ الْمُرْسَلِينَ إِلَّا مُبَشِّرِينَ وَمُنْذِرِينَ وَيُجَادِلُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بِالْبَاطِرِ لِيُضْحِضُوا بِهِ الْحَقِّ وَاتَّخَذُوا آيَاتِ وَمَا أُنْذِرُوا هُزُوًا he says, we send the messengers only as deliverers of good news and warners. Those who disbelieve argue with false arguments in order to defeat the truth thereby. They take my verses and the warnings for a joke. So there's a lot here. He's telling them and us that the prophets are sent to all as people who bear the bushra, the glad tidings, and the warnings. They come with these two. And these people are just arguing falsely. They're not arguing because they're right. They're arguing because they do not want to accept the truth. It's a stubbornness. There are people who argue because they are convinced about their false belief. They have convinced themselves of that falsehood. But this is speaking to a people who, deep down, they know that they're wrong, but because they stand to lose their position and authority, because of their arrogance and pride, they argue with falsehood to defeat the truth, knowing that it's not real, knowing that it's false. It's just out of stubbornness. It's a, it's a really disturbing mentality. There, and there are people like that. Just the arrogance overtakes them 
and they know they're wrong, but they argue just because they don't want to concede that they're wrong. It's just arrogance and pride. And because a person who knows they're wrong can't really argue their point, all they can use is false arguments. And these false arguments are utterly unconvincing. Their insincerity is very plain to see. Because of that, they then resort to another tactic. So if they argue with falsehood, knowing they're wrong, and that's not really working, they resort to the next tactic, which is mockery and derision, making things a joke. And this is why Allah Ta'ala says, ayati wa They take my verses and the warnings for a joke. They resort to mockery and they take these, thing, these things lightly and that's a part of their attack against the truth. So there's false arguments, but also there's mockery. So understand that comedy is a weapon used against the sacred. This is a norm in human societies. When people would try to object to truth and fight against it, they would bring forth false arguments and they would also bring forth mockery and derision, making fun of, making light of, and joking about the sacred. So comedy is a very ancient weapon used against the sacred. And it's important to understand how that works because mockery is basically a weapon against morality and it's not attacking the truth of that thing. It's attacking the moral weight of that thing. So just take prayer, for example. <coughs> if you have people who make fun of salat, this is called istihza. Istihza is mentioned in the Quran in Surah At-Tawbah. If a person makes fun of things that are connected to the religion, this can be kufr. It can be disbelief. When a person makes fun of the salat, they are not attacking the salat by saying that it is uh, bad or that you should do something else. What they are doing is attacking it by making its moral weight less powerful. They're basically mocking it, not because they think it's false, but they're mocking it to challenge the reverence given towards it. Because they want people to also laugh at it so that the attitude becomes irreverent, where people don't care about it anymore. It's considered a light thing that we don't take serious. So that's, that's how comedy works. And comedy is basically removing the weight of ta'zim, the weight of veneration from things that are sacred. So if you mock something enough, it becomes a joke. And people take it lightly, they don't take it serious. And in this day and age, you see this in lots of comedy. Not just towards Muslims, by the way, but towards religion in general. People who mock religion, people who mock God, people who mock whatever, Christianity or whatever. They mock the sacred 
And basically, it's a way to make uh, morality look stupid. And when they make morality look stupid, they try to make moral people look stupid. And people don't want to look stupid, so they don't act on that morality or they don't take it as seriously as they should. So it's a weapon. And you see this uh, in popular culture. You see this even in so-called Muslim spaces of people with Muslim names going on TV, mocking dua, mocking Quran, mocking salat, making light of these matters, uh, mocking hijab, all sorts of things, all under the guise of comedy. And their get-out-of-jail-free card, when they're challenged, is they say, oh, I'm just joking, mm-hmm. right? I'm just joking. It's just a joke. Take it easy, bro. What's wrong? I'm just joking. I was only joking. But subhanAllah, if you go to the Qur'an, go to chapter 9, Allah tells the story of what happened during the expedition to Tabuk. Some of the munafiqun were there. And some of them, as they were sitting down, began joking. And it was very, it was very nasty jokes too. And <coughs> they said things about the companions and about the Prophet ﷺ. They were very demeaning. Um, one of the believers, one of the Sahaba heard them and stood up and said, I'm going to go tell the Messenger of Allah what you said. And he goes and he tells the Prophet ﷺ, and he's on his camel as this munafiq is chasing behind him. And he says, uh, Wallahi, innama kunna nakhudu wa nal'ab. Right? We were just playing around, we we're just joking. Right? Again, just joking. So Allah Ta'ala revealed, answering that, قُلْ أَبِ اللَّهِ وَآيَاتِهِ وَرَسُولِهِ كُنْتُمْ تَسْتَهْزِئُونَ Say, was it in Allah and in His signs and in His messenger that you were belittling, making fun of? لَا تَعْتَذِرُوا Don't make any excuses for yourself. قَدَ كَفَرْتُمْ بَعْدَ إِمَانِكُمْ You have disbelieved after your iman. Right? So it's very deadly. And we see here, that one of the techniques to fight truth is if, you can't, if they can't bring false arguments, they try to bring mockery to make people the laughing stock or the butt of jokes. So, and that hasn't, that hasn't stopped. So then Allah Ta'ala says, وَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ مِمَّنْ ذُكِّرَ بِآيَاتِ رَبِّهِ فَأَعْرَضَ عَنْهَا وَنَسِيَ مَا قَدَّمَتْ يَدَاهِ who does greater wrong than he who, when reminded of his Lord's revelations, turns away from them and forgets what his hands have put forward, what he's done? We have placed coverings over their hearts lest they understand understand it and heaviness in their ears and if you call them to guidance they will not be guided ever this is a very scary verse because it tells you that there are some people who reach a point where guidance is not going to reach them no matter what it's a done deal we don't know who those people are Allah knows 
we make da'wah to anybody, anybody can change. But we know that there are some people for whom it's a done deal. So Allah Ta'ala says, وَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ Who is wronger than the one who does this? There's no greater dhulm than worshipping other than Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. As Allah says in the Qur'an, إِنَّ الشُرْكَ لَظُلْمٌ عَظِيمٌ Shirk is the great dhulm. And <coughs> it's really important, I feel, to reflect on this verse. In this day and age in particular. Because notice how Allah Ta'ala is saying. It's a rhetorical question. Who is greater in dhulm? Who's a greater oppressor than the one who, when reminded of his Lord's revelations, turns away from them and forgets what he has done? So that's the greatest dhulm, the greatest oppression. But we are living in a time where people, ostensible Muslims, have downgraded kufr and shirk to lesser sins. And they have upgraded other sins to the worst sins. Right? We're, we're, we're in that time, you know? Like a per, an example. Uh, a person can hear an individual calling upon other than Allah and describing other than Allah with the qualities of Allah. Just shirk. Whatever form it takes. They see it. They hear it. And though they don't believe in it, it doesn't really bother them that much. They just see it. But another person says something that goes against their pet ideology, right? Their politics, right? That is not politically correct. Then they say, oh, that person is incredibly problematic and you know, who they need to educate themselves and they're just a bigot and they should be this and that. They get really offended if you speak about some of these issues that they feel are insensitive, right, towards other people. And maybe they're right. But they consider those greater offenses than worshiping other than Allah. So the priorities are upside down, right? Uh, let's, give a, let's give a concrete example. Like we all agree, we all agree that that racism is wrong, right? It's wrong. It's wrong. But there are people who consider that a greater sin than worshiping other than Allah, right? They don't say it that way, but lisan al-hal, you know, their, their mute tongue says it because it's the way they react to these things. They get angrier at those things than they do at shirk. They get more offended, right? So what's happened is they've upgraded certain things as greater, the greatest sins, and they've downgraded the actual greater sins. It's a misplacement of priorities. You know, as Muslims, <laughs> you know, you can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. You know, you can be opposed to racism while understanding that there are some things worse than it, and you can address both, right? But people have this weird, this weird idea that, you know, you, you have to just focus on one thing at a time. No, you can be opposed to everything, but everything gets its due proportion, right? You have major sins, you have minor sins. You're not going to respond to a minor sin the way you respond to a major sin. Is saying a dirty word the same as murder? No. You know, saying, saying a foul word can be a minor sin. Murder is a major sin. 
Why would we treat a, you know, a dirty word worse than murder? Right? That seems absurd, ridiculous. But it's the same state where people, because they get fed into these ideologies and these isms, they begin to look at certain things as greater sins than what Allah calls the greatest sin and the, most, the greatest oppression. So and that's something to consider. No meaning. No meaning. If they if they were to see someone commit an act of shirk, they wouldn't bat an eyelid. Like say they they walk past a a church service where they're praying to Jesus, you know that's shirk, right? Or they they see a, a Hindu, yeah. Or they walk past a, let's say they walk past a, you know, a Hindu temple or something. Nothing wrong with walking past it. I'm talking about the attitude of the heart when seeing something that is, that is wrong. Because the Prophet says, if you see an evil, right, you, you change it with your hand. If you can't, then your tongue. If you can't do that, then at least you hate it in your heart. So the ideal is that if we see something wrong, like, okay, we can't change it with our hand. if We don't have that kind of authority, obviously. Changing it with your tongue, it's contextual and depends on your ability to reason with people and talk to them, obviously. So many times we don't have those options. But the last option is always available, which is to hate that thing in the heart. Now, Imam al-Ghazali talks about this in the Ihya, about how the, the great danger of sins that are done in the public is that the more often they're done, we get desensitized to them, right? And you know, the, a good example, this has resonated with a lot of people. Uh, if you go for Umrah, Right, you're gone for two weeks, and you're in the zone. You're 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 in, in Mecca. You're doing Umrah and Tawaf and Zikr and Dua. Everything. You're in Medina. You're on cloud nine, and then you get on the airplane to come back. How do you notice how more sensitive you are to just general fahisha and foulness when you land in JFK or wherever in America? Like you're more sensitive to it, but in two weeks' time or so. You get used to it again. You get desensitized. If a person sees uh, the evil of shirk, whatever form it is, at the very least, we say, you know, Allahumma inna hadha munkar. This in your heart, this is, this is a wrong, right? Yeah, we live in a society as a religious minority, and we deal with people with, with wisdom and fairness, but you know, we recognize wrong is wrong, even if we can't change it. The point I'm making is that uh, people get so, they don't bat an eyelid if they see something that's shirk. They don't, they're not, de they're desensitized to that wrong. But other things that may be wrong are, are accorded a higher status. They're seen as greater wrongs than the things that are far worse by the text of the Quran. Wisdom and justice dictate that everything is given its appropriate place. Yeah. There are some things that are good, some things that are better, some things that are best. Some things are bad, some things are worse, and some things are worst with T. So hikmah, wisdom, is putting things in their proper places. So if a person takes the greatest evil, which Allah doesn't forgive, and they downgrade it to 
a minor thing we dislike, but it's a person's choice and blah, blah, blah. But then they take something else that may be sinful and they take it to the level that shirk should be on as a crime or a sin. They are not putting things in the proper place. And the Qur'an is described as Qur'an al-Hakim, right? It teaches us how to put things in their proper place. And when people go astray, whether it's towards negligence or extremes, because you have both, it is always by people taking things out of their proper places, right? Either they're going too far with something that doesn't need to go that far, or they're neglecting something that shouldn't be neglected, right? Every, every iteration of uh, misguidance going this way or that way, it's not putting things in the proper place, right? Even shirk itself, the, the word shirk uh, means association, but the definition is which literally means taking something and putting it in the wrong place. And ibadah, which should be directed towards the Creator, is put in the wrong place and is directed towards creation. So every form of misguidance is basically putting something in the wrong place. So the Qur'an teaches us order, structure, and prioritization of, of morals, of everything, right? How can this wisdom and suggest people attain or are you getting it wrong? In the Hadith Qudsi, Allah Ta'ala says, all of you are misguided or you're lost except those I guide. So seek guidance from me and I guide you. So you seek guidance sincerely and you seek to remove that stubbornness that Allah is describing here. Uh, Allah gives you that light. And what is, how does Allah describe this? Uh, the one who pursues this path, Allah Ta'ala says, يَجْعَلَّهُ فُرْقَانًا will give him a furqan. What's a furqan? It is the criteria, the ability to distinguish, to discern between truth and falsehood, to discern between good, better, best, between bad, worse, worst, between all of these things. The furqan, discernment and, and clarity, right? In pursuing it from the Qur'an, from the guidance of the Prophet wasallam, and looking at the world around you in uh, interpreting what's going on through the lenses of that guidance and just kind of let the chips fall wherever they where they may you know it is what it is right it's by uh, turning away from that and lacking that criteria lacking that discernment that people put things in the wrong places right and ultimately that's what shirk is but in the in the worst possible way so we'll come now to the end of this. Uh, in the next verse, Allah Ta'ala now says, وَرَبُّكَ الْغَفُورُ ذُ الرَّحْمَةِ This is beautiful. Allah is now addressing the Prophet وَرَبُّكَ Go look up the concordance of the Holy Qur'an. Uh, what do they call this? This... Uh, this fahrast or fihrist, the, the glossary or the concordance of all of the terms in the Qur'an. There's different ones. Uh, if you look up Fu'ad Abdul Baqi's 
you don't need to know Arabic to use this, but you can look up the root word and see how many times that word has been used in the Quran or that phrase. It's a very useful tool. Look up how many times Allah Ta'ala says, Rabbuka, your Lord, addressing the Prophet You see it forms the bulk of the Quranic discourse. Allah is not just saying the Lord, your Lord. And this indicates the status of the Prophet He says, your Lord is Al-Ghafuru, Dhu'r-Rahmah, the forgiver, the possessor of mercy. لَوْ يُؤَاخِذُهُمْ بِمَا كَسَبُوا لَعَجَّلَ لَهُمُ الْعَذَابِ بَلْ لَهُمْ مَوْعِدٌ لَنْ يَجِدُوا مِنْ دُونِهِ مَوْئِلًا Were he to call them to account for what they have earned, he would have hastened the punishment for them. But they have an appointment from which they will find no escape. This is very subtle. Because Allah Ta'ala is addressing the Prophet saying, وَرَبُّكَ غَفُورٌ Your Lord is Al-Ghafoor, the forgiving, Dhu'r-Rahmah. Why does he say Ghafoor? He says, Ghafoor is intensely forgiving. Not just forgiving, intensely forgiving. Because it's Sigha Mubalagha, we say, Ghafir, Ghafar, Ghafoor. So Ghafoor is intensely forgiving. Why does he say this here? Because, so who knows what the root meaning of, of Ghafar? It's covering, right? Has Allah covered Quraysh from punishment? He didn't destroy them. So in that sense, they were already received a covering, meaning they weren't, they were covered by Rahmah insofar as they didn't receive an encompassing punishment like Adin Thamud, which they were talking about. Saying, what are the, you know, show us this. So Allah is mentioning that He has not taken them to task for all the evils they have done. And were He not to cover them, they would have had the punishment hastened upon them. This is why He says, were he to call them to account for what they've earned, he would have hastened the punishment for them. But Allah did not hasten the punishment. Allah has given them a chance. He has covered them with respite, giving them time. However, after that, there is an appointment. There is a maw'id. Allah Ta'ala mentions this. But they have an appointment from which they will find no escape. What is this maw'id? Now, people think the maw'id could be death, the day of judgment, possible. However, you find in the tafsir, they say that the maw'id here, the appointment Allah is speaking about, is the battle of Badr that hasn't happened yet. This verse, this is revealed in Mecca. But it is talking about an appointment that will only come to pass on the day of Badr. When things are made very clear and Allah gives manifest victory to the Prophet ﷺ and the companions. So some say it refers to the day of judgment, for sure. Some say it refers to Badr or the other battles. 
So that appointment can be in this life and or the next. Either or. Yeah. There's that inbuilt ambiguity. The ma'id can be the time or the place of appointment. Right? So the time could be the liqa, the battle, or the place of the battle, or the mahsha, the day of judgment, or the time of judgment. Yeah. So then Allah Ta'ala says, وَتِلْكَ الْقُرَىٰ أَهْلَكْنَاهُمْ لَمَّا ظَلَمُوا وَجَعَلْنَا لِمَهْلِكِهِمْ مَوْعِدًا and these towns, we destroyed them when they committed injustices. And we set for their destruction an appointed time. So now Allah is reminding Quraysh that the past nations were destroyed because of their rejection. So we're reminded about these past nations and we're invited, Quraysh are invited, to think about these patterns in Allah's creation. Think about the pattern in the rise and fall of nations and to see where they are in relation to those past nations. How similar are we to those past nations that got destroyed in our qualities, in our rejection? This is what Allah is inviting them to reflect on. Don't think you're the exception. Don't think that you as a society and civilization stand outside of the human norm. All of these civilizations rose, declined, and fell, and some of them were utterly destroyed, but somehow you think you're the exception. Somehow you think that the patterns that Allah has set in creation don't apply to you. So Allah is reminding them these patterns apply to people. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has patterns in the creations. That's why when you look at the destruction of Ad and Thamud, what does Allah call it? Sunnatul Awaleen. Right? The Sunnah means the pattern, the norm. Was that pattern established for Quraysh? It wasn't. Allah says that he covered them, didn't punish them, gave them a chance. And that is because of the rahmah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْعَالَمِينَ The ulama mentioned that an aspect of the Prophet's mercy is that from his time forward until the Day of Judgment, those who reject him will not receive an all-encompassing punishment like Adin Thamud. No, they, they'll, just have, they'll have reprieve, respite, until they leave this world. Unlike the past nations, when they rejected their prophets, they would receive some punishment, destroying them, waking them up and whatnot. No, we have a chance. People have a chance. So the Prophet ﷺ made dua that there will be no universal destruction that encompasses this ummah as well. By flood... By, by earthquake, by any catastrophe that we call natural catastrophe. So the ummah may face calamities, you know, regional floods, regional earthquakes, or all sorts of problems, but there's nothing that's going to encompass the entire ummah, right? Everybody. Same goes for other nations and peoples. As a people, if a people turn away and reject, they're all not going to just be destroyed like Adin Thamud. That that pattern has been disrupted by Allah's will out of honor for the Prophet ﷺ, out of his request. So Allah is reminding them of those patterns in the past and also telling them that you have a chance. Don't be so stubborn. Look at this. Consider this guidance. 
So this ends the two themes. The next theme is the story of Sayyiduna Musa and Khidr alayhim salam and that that may be <coughs> I think we'll do it in one session but there's a lot to talk about because there's a lot of things we derive from that story besides just telling the story itself so inshallah we'll cover that in one class wallahu rasuluhu a'lam sallallahu wa sallam ala sayyidina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam